my name is Gary Lama. Today's interview is with Chris Sports Larson. Chris is an artist, a photographer, who with her zine Slug and Lettuce documented hardcore punk in New York City and Richmond, Virginia, building something of community through the zine throughout the 90s. Today she is working on a new photo project. It was exciting to talk with Chris and find out her opinions on things happening today, as well as look back at parts of her life. This interview is broken up into eight parts. This is part one. Enjoy. How would you describe what you do nowadays? Nowadays? Yeah. Um, it's a lot different. I mean, I'm not publishing the Zine anymore. So, um, I've been going through my archives. I finally actually finished scanning all of my film from, you know, 25 years or something. Uh-huh. And, um, Actually, it's not filmed from 25 years. But anyway, I basically went through all my film and scanned it all so that now I have everything scanned digitally, um, organized, sortable, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have been working for more years than I can count towards the idea of a photo book. Right. But it's way too overwhelming and way too big of a project for me because... For for a lot of reasons. I mean, for one, there's just so much. And, you know, so I've gone through different stages of planning to focus. Initially, I just wanted to do a photo book that was my New York years. Mm-hmm. So the early 90s, about 89 to 95. That was my focus. And I moved here to Richmond in 97. So, you know, I came kind of like fresh with that plan. You know, like, I'm going to do a photo book from these years. Well, how many years later? <laughs> I've got more stuff. I've got this. You know, so anyway, it, it it hasn't happened. Some of it was my own need to organize what I was doing. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, back then the problem—I mean, it's not a problem—but I was still publishing the zine, and that took up so much time that I didn't have time to do something else. And um, so anyway, now what I've been doing in the last couple of years is I, I started a website. It's I don't remember exactly when I started it. It's probably been like five years or so. And I published all of the photos that had been printed in Flood and Lettuce are on the website. And then I also put up uh, archives of all the columns. So basically, the, the Flood and Lettuce website is just an archive of what happened for 20 years. I didn't put any of the reviews up because, I don't know, it just didn't seem that really necessary. I kind of thought about it at times, thought it might be kind of fun, but then it wasn't a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wanted to go back since I finished getting all the stuff that had been published, um, you know, all the all the photos that were in Fuzz and Lettuce, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go and supplement that with a lot of stuff that, that wasn't and just kind of keep expanding, you know, the archive. But I didn't really end up doing that. I, I kind of ended up doing that a little bit on my Facebook plug and lettuce page, mm-hmm. basically because it was just a lot easier, which mm-hmm. is kind of sad, I think. But as I was scanning through all the archives, band archives specifically, I would kind of daily or weekly. Actually, I went through a year where I did a photo, at least one photo a day, a band photo a day on the on the on the 
Facebook page, which was really pretty fun because it was kind of like gave me a small goal just to do one a day. Yeah. And it also kind of kept momentum and attention, I guess. You know, I mean, it was a consistent thing. And I, and I really like consistent things. So that was a lot of fun. And then after the year, I kept going while I was still scanning regularly. And then I think I, I just hit a stretch where I, I just kind of stopped scanning. I probably got really busy at work doing something else and had a couple of months where I wasn't really scanning. And ever since then, it's kind of been really hit and miss what I, what I put up. Like I'll go on a binge and I'll put up 50 pictures and then I won't do anything for a while. And then I'll, you know, do a little bit regularly. On the Facebook page, are these pictures that were previously published or are these new, new pictures or pictures that didn't make it both? It's okay. both, yeah, which is which is fun because you know, for every picture that was you know that that people have seen, there's hundreds that were never seen. Some are very different and some are very similar, you know. So it's it's kind of fun, um, and, and sometimes they're just pictures of just people, you know, show show pictures of people in the crowd or just, you know friends hanging out and stuff that, you know, the kind of thing that wouldn't have necessarily been published in the zine, but is fun to just share back with people who, you know, with that kind of stuff, a lot of time it's for people who were there really. Right. But even if you weren't there, sometimes it's fun to look at. Um, but so anyway, the, uh, the archiving process finally, like I said, was completed. I finished scanning everything. So now I have this kind of database sorted by, year, month, date, band, you know, and it's, it's done. There's like 50,000 pictures or something. And then I really haven't done anything with it since then. <laughs> so this is on so, like a local hard drive that you, like on, on like your hard drive, you have all this stuff yes. sorted like that. And so, yes. so if you decided I'm going to put a book, like it's all ready to go. You just would have to figure out right. some organizational, like, Exactly. Key for the book. Yeah, well, that's got to be very difficult because you, I mean, with that size, I mean, what do you do it alphabetically? Like, here's book A through C. Right, or... right. <laughs> right. Wow. And, I mean, I mean, really, I, I've kind of, I've gotten to a point now where I am ready to do the next thing, you know, I and mean, I'm kind of ready to, to work, I guess, on the book because now I have this stuff. I mean, that was one of the things that, would get me so frustrated is I had years ago, probably when I, in the late nineties, maybe even into, you know, around 2000, when I was living here in Richmond, I went through all the negatives and I printed all the pictures that I thought I, I wanted to include for my initial New York years photo book. And I still have this file cabinet, three file drawers full sorted by band of all the photos. This is obviously before digital, so I had all the prints. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, time passed, and then things changed, and then I kind of became aware of the fact, like, okay, ultimately I'm going to end up having to, you know, scan these into a digital format so that this can be done. And, you know, what I used in the zine were really low res because it was, you know, laser printer, newsprint, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Not the same kind of thing that would happen for an actual book. But now, finally, I'm pretty excited because I have everything scanned, high-res, ordered, sorted, you know. So it's like I'm finally ready to do it. And in, and in a way, I think it won't – I mean, 
it's hard to do it, but I kind of know what I want. I've known what I wanted to do the whole time. It was just a matter of getting it lined up in my own head. And right. that's the hardest part sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, initially I, w- I would start with the New York. I'd actually probably take a selection from, you know, the 80s back mm. in Pennsylvania. And then I would focus on the New York folk. And then what came after, you know, here and then, you know, the years, as I call the fest years, where, you know, there's three or four different, interna- not international, but national big fests where there'd be a thousand bands playing. And, um, you know, and then on, I mean, I probably, I would, I would obviously have to cap it at some point. And in the last few years, I, I really don't have as much new stuff. I mean, I don't, unfortunately, go to near as many shows as I used to, and not because I don't want to. I mean, but it's just life gets in the way sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, but I, but I still, I still do. I still photograph bands. I still love photographing bands. I love it. And, um, you know, so if I, if I were to start organizing a book tomorrow or try to publish a book, you know, and then any time I, I would, would ultimately probably go up to current. It just wouldn't be as much current. And that concludes part one of our eight-part interview with Chris Bortz Larson. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on April 28th and April 30th, 2014. things. This is part two of our eight-part interview with Chris Sports Larson. Enjoy. I do actually have another project that I've been working on, completely unband related, and it's just like I've been photographing trees with Instagram. Yeah. Which is kind of weird in a way, but it's been really super fun. I started, it's, it's been two years that I've been working on it. And it was just, you know, something I just kind of started, had my phone and I was, took a couple pictures and I was like, got really inspired. And then I just kind of ran with it and I haven't done anything with it. Well, I've, I've been printing like crazy and I've published a couple just, you know, like, uh, shutterfly type type books for myself, mm-hmm. but I haven't actually done anything really with it. And, um, but it's just a really, it was really fun to get really inspired after coming, I guess, not really doing anything for a while. You know, I mean, I haven't done a zine. The last issue of Southern Lettuce was, the print issue was published in 2007, which is forever ago, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, so it's just been really fun to have a new project that's been super exciting and inspiring and really fun. And, and are so, you shooting that on your phone? Yes, it's, I think it's so dumb that I'm doing this like really awesome, super cool thing with my phone. Well, I mean, that like, it just that actually me. that reminds me of uh, the British. I cannot remember his name. Um, there's a British painter who's very famous, and he uh, he started making paintings on his iPad, okay. and um, 
Yeah, like, I mean, that's just what he's doing now. Like, he just went from making, like, you know, paintings that were hanging in all these British fine art museums to just doing them on his iPad. And from his perspective, it's just using new technology. And it's interesting, though, because photographers, because of the mechanics involved, um, they tend to be very romantic about the process. Like some will be very like, oh, I only use film and other people are like, you know, I only use DSLRs by Canon, you know, and fuck Nikon. And, and, you know, so does that make you feel kind of like you're doing something like really mischievous by (laughs) by using your phone? Well, the thing that's, the thing that's weird about it is I am, I am not a tech person at all. Like I'm actually kind of a, a light in many ways. And I've, I mean, I came to even digital years and years ago now, but I came to it late in in many regards because I was a film purist. I love film. That's what I do. I'm a photographer, blah, 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 you know. Well, you weren't so a Luddite a in the analog sense of it. Like you were, because you know how to make prints and that kind of thing, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, like you mean like classic darkroom? Exactly. Yeah. Cause oh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I grew up with. That's right. what I, you know, absolutely. No, it's just technology, electricity, electronics, you know. The digital, digital realm of it. Stuff, right. Like all of it is, is crazy. But I mean, honestly, even even as um, in classic traditional photography, there's there were, you know, I went, I went to school for photography and there's the people who are very interested in the technical process, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the mechanics and the the numbers and the all this stuff, which for me, it's like that's a means to the end. Like I don't, not that I don't care about it. It's just like I say, it's just how I get where I need to go. Right. Well, there's definitely um, those people that are like f- photographers and heads. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like they're like you know, I only use the sharpest lenses and you know this yeah, and, and that. And I, and I mean, honestly, like they're they're you know, you could ask me which camera I have, and I'm like. Uh, forget. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I know what I have, but it's just—it's not important. Like, right. that's not the picture is what's important, and the process is important. And I'm—and I'm, I'm actually very—you know—like I kind of find what works for me, and then I stick with it. Like, I'm really kind of sub stubborn, and you know, like old school in a way. Like, I don't change, and in some ways, that's—I don't know—maybe a flaw, but then in some ways I think that's also my asset because it makes what I do very consistent and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of solid in a way because, you know, like I just get something and I can stick with it. Like I'm not completely unwilling to, to try new things and to change. I just sometimes drag my feet about it a little bit. <laughs> well, that's you a, know, that's a pretty process. drastic change. Yeah. The process, when you say that, um, the process is good or the process has to be good. You're talking about the, how photography interacts with like how you're moving through your life. Is that essentially what you're meaning? Like, um, um, well, I mean, besides the fact that I essentially see everything in the world as a photograph. Okay. <laughs> so I'm always seeing photographs, which is one of the reasons this is almost like a jumping, jumping subject, but in a way, having this like phone in my pocket that takes amazing pictures is kind of a life changer because I can just, at any minute, you know, I can actually take all the pictures that for my whole life I have been seeing them and not necessarily having 
the camera to take them. But um, but what I what I think I was was referring to by the process is I have a tendency to when I was printing in the dark room, I would I would have a kind of paper that I liked and I would have kind of a setup that I worked with and I would print my edited, chosen, you know, kind of final prints. I would print them all the same size with the same kind of border so that I was constantly adding to something that was kind of a streamline. You know, it wasn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't change my formats. I didn't do really big stuff and then really small stuff and then square stuff and long stuff. You know, it was just always six by nine black border on this kind of paper. And, you know, even when I, when I guess when I stopped printing, in the dark room myself, I still have kind of a formula. You know, I do proof prints in this size, final prints in this size, organize them all in in the same kind of thing. Like everything has to be very kind of orderly for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that at the end of the day, like I can always just kind of pick from, from this time period and this time period, and then it all has a consistency that's the same. So some part of all that for me is, is the process. It's a very ordered, organized process. I mean, a lot of people are just kind of all over the place and do very different things in very different times, and and that's a, just a you know, and that's their process. Well, it, it, um, it seems like it'd be easier to focus on the subject matter when everything else is the same. So, like, if you're yeah. like looking at the picture, you can be like, "This is this band. This is this band." Not like, "Oh, this is this one with the cool borders, and this one doesn't have that." Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's like for me, like that, that kind of is like a couple things that make me personally kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Like the people that hold their flash up in the air, like, and I'm just like, "Oh my god, panic! No, no idea what's gonna happen." Well, I mean, that sounds silly. I'm kind of you know, being dramatic, but it's just, for me, I'm like, no, I need to know exactly, like, I have this, you know, kind of control over how I'm doing what I'm doing, and I know what's going to happen, and yet, at the same time, like, that's the magic of photography, is that it's always kind of a mystery as to what's going to happen, you know? Yeah, it's always <laughs> a little bit different. And how the motion, and how the settings, and, you know, I mean, that's what makes it so, I mean, for me, so fun and, and magical is that it's magic. <laughs> when with film, there was a lot more magic and mystery. With digital, I mean, you see it. You you go, oh, that that worked, cool. Let's go with that. Oh, that didn't. Let's you know change it. Whereas with film, it'd be like kind of okay. Let's try a couple different things because when I you know process my film tomorrow, I want to know that I I got something. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And over the years, for me, like photographing in the same place. You know, whether it was at ABC Rio or Twisters or, you know, just some some place where I was every week or, you know, every couple weeks and the lights would be, you know, the same or different. Like I could walk into a place and say, like, OK, this is this is the settings that I need and I know what I'm going to get. But then I can also say, so let me try some other stuff and, you know, kind of experiment a little bit as well. And that concludes part two of our eight part interview with Chris Boards Larson. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on April 28th and April 30th, 2014. Things. 
This is part three of our eight-part interview with Chris Ports Larson. Enjoy. When did you start taking pictures? In uh, 1985. So I was like 15 in high school. You started, that's when I started, I mean, I, I, I've been taking pictures since I was little. Like, I, I had a 110 camera when I was, you know, five years old that oh, I took wow. pictures with, with my dad. But probably when I was 15, I was like, I want to I want to take black and white pictures with the, you know, the SLR, the real mm-hmm. camera. And I started doing that, and I started taking, um, you know, photography classes in high school. And both of my parents are sort of amateur photographers, so... My dad actually had a darkroom set up, so he was knowledgeable in darkroom. I think he was a yearbook photographer or something. And my, and yet, from my life experience, it was my mom who was the one that was always taking pictures. She was the one with the, you know, Minolta SLR and was always taking pictures of everything. And um, so I, I guess I really grew up very surrounded by it. And so it was kind of, and it's not like they were you know, pushed it on me or anything, but it was just there. So I just kind of picked it up and, and then ran with it and took some classes. Like, like I said, at school, my dad worked with me a lot in the dark room and helped me set up the dark room in, my, in our basement. I think it was really probably like 86, 87 when I started photographing shows. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, which was the first shows that I was going to then. So it's kind of cool that the two things just have always been there for me. I mean, my first punk show, I had a camera. And what was your hope with shooting the band? So was it just like to have a picture of them or? Yeah. I mean, actually like some of the pictures that I look at that I took that on, on, are so frustrating to me because it's just like, oh my God, why didn't I, whatever, fill in the blank, you know, right. <laughs> why, why didn't, why, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it was just, I just started doing it and I, I didn't really do, I mean, I actually I started the zine in, in 1987. Mm-hmm. So that too, the three things, you know, it's like going to shows, well, discovering punk, going to shows, taking pictures, publishing the zine. And what was Pickles. the zine like? What was your <laughs> inspiration for that? Because was it to put pictures in it or was it to write? No, it was just, I, add my contribution to the scene <laughs> and basically what it was is 1987 state college pennsylvania we actually had a really good scene we had um a couple people at, at penn state at the university they were students um some of them were, were native locals a couple of them were just you know went to school there and they started booking shows at the university so we had this like year of amazing, amazing shows. You know, it was like DRI, Dr. No, COC, The Descendants, Agnostic Front, like all those bands played like that year. Wow. It was amazing. And that's just a few of them. So I was going to shows, kind of getting into photography, like, and I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't trying, I didn't have a goal. I wasn't really trying to do anything. It was, and, and initially, I think I even took, 
Some some of the pictures I took were just like with little point and shoot, and then some of them I started trying to take with my my real camera, and then eventually I got a flash, and I was trying that. You know, it was just kind of I was just learning, and I actually remember a friend of mine telling me, and this is the best advice that you know I probably ever had, and it came fortunately almost from day one. And he told me he said you have to you know you have to listen to the music when you're taking the pictures listen for the action you know and I was like well yeah but it's funny you know if he wouldn't have said that to me when he said it you know who knows I obviously would have figured it out but it was just one of those like moments where it just kind of clicked around that time you know I was reading Maximum Rock and Roll and ordering fanzines from, you know, the reviews, and I just kind of thought, you know, this is something I could do. It made sense to me. I mean, I was I was interested in art. I was interested in photography. I wasn't really a writer, but, and I wasn't really interested in, in writing per se, but I just, you know, the kind of, I don't want to say arts and crafts, but, but the art aspect of it, you know, the graphic design aspect of it. I was, mm-hmm. I was pretty into into that kind of thing. I was definitely an art student even in high school. And um, I had absolutely zero interest in being in a band or being on stage or, or being on that end of it. And I suppose I don't know that everybody kind of says, like, what can I do? But to me, that made sense. It was like, well, what can I do? And, and it's not like I even thought, like, well, can't be in a band. So I guess I'll have to do a zine. It was just kind of like, hey, we've got this really cool thing happening, and I'm learning about this scene, and I'm writing to other people, and getting fanzines here and there. I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. So yeah. uh, I did my first issue in 1987, and it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's, you know, I had some interviews, I had some pictures, some random, just random crap, you know, but I, I did a few issues like that and then you know the focus I started to kind of narrow it narrow it down it actually took me really just a couple years when I moved to New York in 1989 to go to school and my my means changed I mean I didn't have access to a copy machine well initially for I think my first couple issues my dad helped me with the copy machine at his work. Mm-hmm. And then I started working at an advertising agency. This was still when I was in high school, like living at home and everything. And I started being able to do some of the graphic stuff there. I mean, this is when we were using stack cameras and, right. um, you know, typesetting machines. Not There was no computers then. There was no graphic digital desktop publishing stuff. So this was all cut and paste and exacto knife and waxers and, you know, but I was able to, like, get some typesetting done at, at the um, at my job, which was pretty cool. So when I moved to New York for school, all of a sudden it was like I had none of those, I had no access. Basically, it was like I had no access to a copy machine, which in the 80s for a zine, that was what it was all about. Mm-hmm. And so I had to say, okay, well, what do I want to do with, with the zine? And, I, and that's when I ended up focusing on the... I said I wanted to do the photographs because that had become important. I wanted to do classifieds, which was the whole context and communication kind of thing. And then I wanted to do reviews. And I started it doing it as just a one page so that I could afford to copy it. I would just go to the copy store, make 25 copies, go to shows, hand them out for free. 
then it was, you know, I started making 50 copies or 100 copies, added a page, you know, 11 by 17 page, folded in half. And then, mm-hmm. and then it just grew from that. Were you selling them? No, no. Just giving free. them out? Yeah. And so would you lose money on each one or, or? Oh, yeah. Well, I just would copy what I could afford. You know, it's like 25 copies. How much does that cost? A couple bucks. No big deal. You know, so it wasn't like I was going in and spending a couple hundred dollars mm-hmm. on photocopies. It was just, you know, just copy however many I could. A hundred copies, you know, 25 bucks at some point. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I honestly have no idea how much it cost at the time. But I, I do remember going out to Queens to some offset printing shop that I think um, somebody hooked me up with. Some like old Zinster guy. Yeah, it was just literally like whatever I could afford. And so I found, you know, okay, offset printing, cheaper than um, Xeroxing. Save a little bit of money, make a little bit of investment of, you know, $25. But it was always something I could afford, you know. It sounds funny now, I mean, $25 is nothing. But, um, you yeah, know, $25 here, $25 there. And then the format just, just grew from there. And, it, and then I started printing it on newsprint. Um, that actually came from Otterot, which was like Neil from Tribal War mm-hmm. and Ralphie. They published Spotterot newspaper that came with the compilation record or something. And they're the ones that hooked me up with the newspaper printer. And I think the first issue that I did with that um, newsprint cost me like a hundred bucks for a thousand copies. Wow. And at that point it was like, okay, so for a hundred dollars, I, start, I got a couple advertisements. You know, I charged like $10 and had like, you know, a few ads. And then it didn't cost me as much. <laughs> so this enabled me to just, I just went to shows. I handed them out for free and went to the record store, left the pile. And then, you know, that like grew. And that concludes part three of our eight-part interview with Chris Sports Larson. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on April 28th and April 30th, 2014. various things. This is part four of our eight-part interview with Chris Sports Larson. Enjoy. That's when I first encountered it was when it was the newsprint format. It was very very well put together, very dense with information, had all the photographs Six in point it. point type. Yeah, very dense. Like, that's just, yep. like, there is no, I mean, it's basically like a punk newspaper, essentially, you yep. know? Like, I mean, yep. it was, there wasn't any, um, here, let's leave a lot of white space or anything like that. No, I fit as much, I mean, every, every, every dot on that page was, was covered. And I, I literally, I shrunk the type. I mean, initially, the few issues I did, even on the newsprint, I was using a typewriter, again, before computers, before desktop publishing, which even that terminology is funny, 
mm-hmm. at this point. <laughs> but I would I would use my typewriter with my condensed mini font, and then I would take it to the copy store and reduce it 68%, and then strip it into the columns. And, you know, and then eventually, I don't know, a year or two into that, I, I did start taking my desktop publishing class using PageMaker. And that was a life changer. <laughs> wow. So at some point, this thing got very, very huge, huge <laughs> distribution. Okay. Um, and this is, this is the thing, not to interrupt, but what was kind of awesome, I think, about, the, about it the whole time is it, it grew really slow, steady, and gradually. So it was like every issue, I printed an extra, you know, initially it was an extra 100 copies. And then I would add a page, add an extra, you know, four pages, because one, one sheet of paper was four pages. So, you know, I went from 1,000 copies, four pages, to 2,000 copies, eight pages. And then it was 3,000 copies, 4,000, 5,000. And each thousand copies was like an extra 50 bucks. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't much. So it's not like I went from, you know, nothing to publishing 10,000 copies of a 30 page. I think it was only over 24 pages, but, um, you know, and paying a couple thousand dollars. I mean, it was never, it, it was so slow and gradual. Honestly, I don't even remember right now how much I was paying for the printing. It wasn't a couple thousand dollars. It was very, it was very reasonable. Mm. Um, but it, it it went it went so so organically, if you will, mm. that and and it grew kind of sensibly. You know, it was like okay, I need an extra, you know, a couple pages, which is a little bit more money. So had a couple more ads. And, you know, then, at, yeah, at the end, it was 10,000 copies, I think it was 24 pages, were, and, and, and then I distributed it worldwide for free. Wow. How did you do it for free? Because the costs of the printing were paid for with the advertising that I got. Mm. And then the, the deal was the zine was free, and you would pay for postage. So... I could send a subscription for the cost of just stamps. And this was another thing that always kept it kind of, it couldn't grow past a certain point because of the, there was this, this formula, you know, the economic formula. Like I couldn't, it couldn't go over two ounces or that would be an extra stamp. You know, so I had some, there was a point at which I was like, well, it has to be 20 pages because if it's 24 pages, then it's going to go up to, you know, 70 cents to mail it instead of 50 cents to mail it and then the whole you know thing will collapse wow that sounds a slightly oversimplified but i mean it was very true it was you know you could get a subscription a year subscription i published it every other month so came out six times a year you get a subscription for three dollars and if you wanted i could send you for a dollar 25 i could send you know 10 or 15 copies or for $2, I could send you 25 copies or for, you know, $3, I could send you a hundred copies. So essentially what happened is there'd be, you know, like a friend of mine in, you know, California that I knew book shows. I'd just be like, here's a hundred copies, hand them out. And then there'd be someone that I didn't know that would say, here's $3, 
send me 100 copies. And so every issue, I would have my initial subscription base of, you know, however many hundred that was. Then I would have the bulk subscriptions, all the people who, you know, sent me, like, people say, like, here's 10 bucks, send me, you know, 25 copies of the next five issues. And I would keep all this written down, and eventually I had it in a, a little mailing list computer program. And then there was a certain amount of just distribution that I just sent out that was kind of factored into the costs. Hmm. So, you know, for example, I would send, you know, 100 copies here, 100 copies there to, to people who did record distributions or mail order distributions or just, you know, had a venue or something where I just, I just wanted them. And as I traveled and went on tour with various bands and stuff, I'd go to a place and be like, oh, this is a cool place. I'm going to send you, you know, copies to hand out because you've got a table where you have that kind of stuff, you know. Never really send them to just random places where I, because I didn't, you know, I didn't want them to go in the trash. I wanted them to be handed out and taken, appreciated, loved. Um, but all of that essentially just, it paid for itself. You know, the the advertising that I had was enough to pay for the the basic distribution that I did as well as the printing. And then people could get copies however many they wanted. And then anywhere that I went, I could hand them out for free. I would. So the thing is, is I never made a penny off of it, but I didn't lose any money. It was a completely like just tough breaking thing. You know, it, I mean, it paid for itself and it kind of had a life of its own for many years. It just kept going because I had, I had a, a formula and a system and every other month it just kind of happened. Obviously. Did you, <laughs> did you feel a, like almost like you were a custodian of it in some way? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I also definitely had times when it, it, it kept me going as much as I kept it going. You know, I mean, I don't mean like from having like some kind of mental breakdown, but I mean, it just, you know, it was a lot of work, mm. but you know, and, and, and one, there might be a, a, a day or a week or a month or something like just be like, oh, you know, oh, I just, I'm tired. Oh, I don't, I don't, I can't find the, the inspiration today. <laughs> and then I would get mail, you know, I mean, I would get a mail bin, at least a bin, a mail a week. And I would get a letter from someone that would just be totally awesome. And that would be my inspiration. Or I'd get a, a fanzine that would just kick ass or, read something or, or, or uh, listen to a new band. And I, and it, that was my inspiration. That was my motivation. And it never stopped. Like it never stopped coming. You know, I mean, every day I got mail every day. I got new stuff every day. I was finding new, you know, new people and new bands and new artists. And yeah. So that's why I say like, I, I mean, I definitely was, completely dedicated to it you know it was an extension of me like every thought that went through my brain somehow ended up in that zine in some way or another I think <laughs> did you but, ever feel like, vulnerable because of that you know no not really I mean there was probably some times when I kind of thought like oh I think I might have put myself out there a little bit you mm. know but um but not really. I mean, I, I kind of learned through it and the organic process of it. Like, I I don't know. I, I felt very in good hands, and I, I trusted my zine and my 
readers and they trusted me the same way. Like, it seems very weird now. That's really cool. The world's very different now, but it was, I mean, it, it took a little bit of work. You know what I mean? Like, and by that, I mean, you know, the, the classifieds and everything about it, you know, ordering, ordering a record or ordering a scene, like you had to, you had to write a letter and it wasn't hard, but it mm-hmm. wasn't the same like instant, my, you know, gratification that there is with the internet and texting and just all this like fast nonsense where you just like use shit before you've even used your brain, you know? <laughs> and like, and, and then it's like, you'd write a letter and maybe you got like really mad and really crazy and wrote this like hot headed thing, which I mean, I, I honestly really didn't because it's just not how my brain is, but mm. you know, and before you got to the post office to mail it, you know, you had a chance to think about it, you know, like, cause you didn't hit, send before you'd even thought about what you wrote you know i mean maybe you didn't proofread it before you sent it but like it didn't go out of your hands before you knew what happened you know Mm. but yeah it was uh it was it was very special (laughs) it really was it was a very amazing amazing time and i feel like it was a really amazing experience that was just like so very much the right time and the right place and the right just thing. It was just, there are no words, you know? And that concludes part four of our eight-part interview with Chris Ports Larson. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on April 28th and April 30th, 2014. various things. This is part five of our eight-part interview with Chris Sports Larson. Enjoy. Do you think something like that could exist today? For me, with Southern Lettuce, contact and communication was like my my motto thing you know like I was like I just wanted people to connect I wanted to put information out there and make it available and have like-minded people be able to find other like-minded people and whether that was because they wanted to hang out and be friends or whether they wanted to you know share each other's music you know that happens now in other other ways. I mean, that happens, you know, everyone sits around and Facebook, hey, look, I found this new thing. Like, I got this new record. Oh, cool, I'm going to go get it now. It's totally different, but, the, you know, the information just is spread so much differently now. And hmm. the other thing I was going to say is I, I've, I'm always really kind of cautious about saying like that no no it doesn't exist i mean no nothing exists the same way that things did in you know the 90s and that there's nothing that's exactly like you know flood and lettuce was to the scene at that time you know that it was representative of and yet you know there's always people who who say like oh the scene is dead 
because it's changed <laughs> from what they were involved in, you know? Right. And so, like, I truly can't say that, like, something doesn't exist just because I don't know about it, you know? Like, I truly believe that there's probably a group of people somewhere doing something completely amazing and self-fulfilling and, like, just rad, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I just don't know about it. And Well, I think people get locked I mean? onto the formats, you know, like, because the formats change. Like, the formats right. always change, you know, like, you know used to take your horse to a blacksmith. Now you take your car to a mechanic. It's it's basically the same right. thing that's happening, but it's just different. And if you get like kind of locked on to like, oh, the music industry's dead because no one's buying CDs anymore. Well, it's like that didn't matter in the 50s, and that doesn't really matter now. People are still sharing music, and right. like, but those basic things are still happening. Like those right. basic interactions are still happening. What I was kind of wondering is that the general spread of it, that doesn't seem to, because to a yeah. certain extent that that generality, the formats actually kind of change the topics a little bit or the 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 spread of them, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Like now magazines, they can't, they don't really report news because it's just kind of irrelevant. So they try to do more sure. like um, sure. in-depth pieces, you know, like trying to figure out what is this median strong for and um you know i think but i think for something like record reviews and that kind of thing i think the paper and if it's thoughts and feelings and 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 kind of a personal take on it i think that can timelessly be in 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 a paper format um i think so it's weird because there's there is a delay but it's not you know if if it's a author people want to read they don't care about the delay. No, you know I, what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a paper person. I'm a book person. I read books. I don't read things online. I don't, it's funny. I have, I have a good, I have a really good attention span and I have a really good focus for detail and I could sit and read a book or, you know, do some little minute thing for ages. And yet like in front of the computer, like I just go, well, I can't, I can't read. <laughs> on a computer for very long, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, or, I mean, I don't have any kind of device or something for reading because I'm like, I want to touch it. I want to feel the paper. And I mean, I think it's awesome that you can store a thousand books in some little handheld thing. And like, I mean, there's, there's something pretty rad about that, but like, you know, and I won't say I'll never use one, but I mean, for me, like a book is like, I love it. <laughs> and and I, I definitely find as much as I love the idea of the ability to, you know, have all this stuff online that you can just get at your fingertips. It's like, I don't really read a lot of stuff online. I don't do a lot of that, you know? Mm-hmm. To me, there's nothing like being able to curl up in a comfy place and like hold a piece of paper and read it. You know, it will get there at some point. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure it will get there at some point. But yeah, there is a, there's a definite, I mean, I'm, I feel much the same way about reading things. Like if I'm going to take serious attention to something, it's, it's very hard for me to do that on the screen. I have to be able to, and I don't, I really don't know what that, why that is because I'm comfortable reading off a screen, but it's just something about the, maybe the, perceived uh importance of it. i don't i don't know i i really have no idea but that it's you know different yeah really different and then there's the mm-hmm. whole like 
one thing that I've been kind of focusing on is the impermanence of digital. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even though, like, let's say I could make an (laughs) e-book, I don't want to make an e-book because it's kind of like the book, it has this kind of permanence over last. It it can be referenced later when formats change. Um, Is that something that you're thinking about? I'm terrified of it. Really? <laughs> I am absolutely terrified of every, of the, I, we have everything in digital format now. I mean, for ha- all the recent years, all of my photographs are digital. I have mm-hmm. them backed up three yeah. or four times. I have them printed, the most important ones. I'm, I still print copies. I'm not a total, in that sense, I think that's where even with my embracing new tools, I still stick with the old ones. You mm-hmm. know, I need to have a hard copy. You know, I, I likewise, I need to have the, the album or the CD as well as I want it in my, you know, my iPod or my computer, but just to have it in there, it's like, to me, I need to be able to hold it. So I need to be able to hold my prints and my pictures and be able to look at them without electricity. But I am absolutely terrified of, you know, the technological crash that is going to come. I mean, and even if, even if, you know, we don't have, you know, some, pulse and we lose everything i mean just keeping up with the changes of of you know mediums and formats and it's like okay we've gotten to a place right now where things are pretty pretty solid and people have so much invested in certain kinds of systems and stuff that it's not gonna go away overnight and it's and and there's going to be means for conversion if it does Mm -hmm. but but things get lost i think there's going to be a and I, I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I don't think I am. There is going to be lose a, a lot. Yeah, and it's going to be like vernacular photography, like people's memories. Like, oh, here's my kid from like a ten year span, and something happened to their drive, <laughs> and it's, it's just gone, gone. just totally gone. Were you referring yeah. to when you said pulse? Were you referring to like electric magnetic pulses yeah. from nuclear attacks? <laughs> Thing. I mean, right. well, you know, we're over. I mean, it's just like crazy shit. I mean, you know. That's I, funny yeah. that you know about that, though, because you're sitting here saying that you're a technical Luddite and you're actually afraid of the only possible, actually possible thing that could cause it. That's that's interesting. So I probably wouldn't call you a complete Luddite because I've never heard someone say that that wasn't like grounded in an actual technological reality. I mean, that's a, that's mm-hmm. a that's a real. I mean, that's that's why uh, a lot of the even nuclear missile silos in this country still ran analog stuff up until very recently was because they were afraid of those EMP attacks knocking out the control systems. Yeah. Weird side note. But that's well, does that give you I mean, because this is if I was in your position, this is what it would I'd be thinking is like newsprint. How long does that last? Like, a lot of that legacy is you know, I don't think that's acid free, <laughs> you know, no, like that's oh gonna, no. they're, that's gonna go lying. away. They're so lying. does that like make you think like, cool book? <laughs> I mean, sure. And I, you know, I, I also, I have all the originals, you know, I have yeah. all the original layouts on printed paper. 
and I have all the photographs, and I have all, you know, I have it all. I just have it all. I keep everything. So, you know, I don't know. Yes, it, I mean, it would be kind of cool to publish a book just of the of the issues, except the fact that the tape is so small, you couldn't just <laughs> copy it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you do do something like that because, you know, I, I when I encounter kids that are coming up nowadays in punk rock, I think they have a lot of great things going for them. But the one thing that I think that I caught in, in my generation was we still had kind of like a more in-person community going on. Right. And and having like things like your zine, there was a pinnacle, I think, for at least punk rock where like having MRR like distributed the way it was, having your zine distributed the way it was, having heart attack distributed the way it was, um, that was pretty amazing. Like that that that, that was pretty amazing that people were doing this. They weren't mm-hmm. really doing it at least in your case, and I don't think Heart Attack was mm-hmm. doing it for profit, like mm-hmm. like very close to nothing, just out of love for the subject. Um, that is a pretty amazing thing to have, and I, I hope that there are things like that um, that can connect people and, and, and make them feel like they're part of something, because that is my only worry, I think, with, with a lot of the digital stuff, is that that maybe some sense of community has been lost. Right. You know? Um, but I, you know, I know, I know for me, uh, things like Slug and Lettuce really did uh, tie that in. And that concludes part five of our eight part interview with Chris. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on April 28th and April 30th, 2014. things. This is part six of our eight-part interview with Chris Boris Larson. Enjoy. As a photographer, how do you feel about um, the uh, prevalence and and the ease of making uh, photographs now? You know, it's well, it's it's a funny thing, and it's weird, and it's complicated, and there's times when it's really exciting, and there's times when it's really depressing, and you know, sometimes I don't know, sometimes I get kind of frustrated, probably, or maybe even a little mad or a little jealous, you know, mm-hmm. and the jealous meaning, you know, something that I've spent my whole life working on, and then you know, someone comes along and just kind of says, hey, I'm going to do this thing, and you know. whatever, like somehow turn it into, you know, like a business or make a whole bunch of money or be really successful. And it's just kind of like a stab in my heart. But then again, at the same time, I mean, I guess I'm also so used to that just in general, right? you know, that I mean, I just kind of, 
plug along doing the things that I do and the things that I love and I'm not a business person and I never will be and I'll probably never make any money doing anything that I do. And there's always going to be people who are business people and business minded who come along and take something and, and pursue it in that direction, you know? Do you think it's, it's from a position of like, because when you started with it, there was so much that you had to do to just get to the point where you could take a picture, like understanding the technique and all that? Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's probably the first thing you've asked me that I've gone, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Completely stumped. I mean. Because I know in the recording I, realm, like uh, I had taken an internship kind of when the studios were falling apart. And so uh, I kind of got the last bit of that. But, it was like a proper internship the way they had kind of done them for 50 or so years. Right. And about five years after that, you could pretty much make a really good recording at home. So it was, it was right. kind of like I'd learned all of this stuff that, I mean, it's still kind of relevant, but it, it all of a sudden like the bottom fell out from the, the right. customer base we were generally serving and people had been serving for 20 or 30 years. And, um, I definitely felt like uh, not like I wasn't mad that people are making good recordings without me. <laughs> I was more like I could see the things that they were losing and making them. Yeah. yeah. Um, like the audio quality wasn't as good. Uh, the certain I mean, real specific things that, you know, the, the trained ear or whatever picks up on um, because it's not like a a one way street. Like there's a benefit to it. And, and there's also like a you've invested this time into to learning something and, and all of a sudden like the rest of the world just kind of like leveled up because of technology and. Exactly. And, and, and I've got all these ideas flying through my mind as, as you know, you're saying that thinking, you know, the same thing happened with, with, you know, graphic design and publishing. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, I, I studied graphic design <laughs> and I studied, you know, like publishing. I mean, I worked in it. Uh, a newspaper and I worked in advertising agencies and then, you know, all of a sudden it just became something that anyone could do at home and you didn't need any special tools and you didn't really need any special skills. And yet with anything like that, whether it's, you know, recording, photography, graphics, I mean, you know, probably writing, I mean, uh, probably a whole list of other things. It's, there's still a big difference between being trained in it and trained in the aesthetic and the deeper understanding versus just the base application of just doing it. You know, I mean, you can throw together, a, a, let's talk 10, 20 years ago at this point, throw together a newsletter, but, you know, um, there's still elements of a design-oriented mind that might help. Mm. Maybe not, you know. Likewise, um, you know, you could take, take uh, pictures of, you know, whatever, but there's still, um, and even if you have a smart camera that does all the work for you, so you don't need to understand as much of the process because you just put it on auto and, and do it, I can, I can guarantee from working in a photo lab and seeing how, ma how many, you know, companies and individuals and industry has been built out of people who have no training whatsoever in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So there's a real big difference. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm sure it, it is, you know, it's like that with, you know, recording music. I mean, if you, you know, you can do a whole lot with 
you know, little study and little, you know, practical training, which in many ways is, is awesome. I mean, DIY, you know, all yeah. the way. That's great. And I'm certainly never going to knock that. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's like, whether it's for yourself, something that you're really into, the more you learn about it, the more you understand about it, the more you study it, the better at it you're going to be and the better able to control what you're doing and, and, you know, just know, I don't know, you can feel good about it even if you don't know what you're doing, but (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, it makes sense to me that, you know, that, that I don't feel like the, the time spent studying and learning is a waste. Like I still feel like it's, it's valuable and I use it and apply it. And I mean, you know, in a way, like my art degree was a slap in the face as well. You know, I studied, I I have a a BFA and, and before I even got my degree, I, I had a teacher who pretty much said, you know, you, to the whole class, not to me, but, you know, said, you've pretty much wasted your time. Like, you don't need this. This degree does nothing for you. (laughs) You would have been better off, you know, taking the time and the money just apprenticing, you know, studying with someone who can teach you the skill that you need because, you know, this is kind of bullshit. (laughs) Wow. Maybe go. (laughs) What year was that? What, What year in your degree was that? I don't remember. <laughs> Probably like, you know, third year-ish. But the thing was, is, is that was so true. Mm. And and yet, I would do everything I did over exactly the same way. Because, um, and I've given advice to people many times when they say like, oh, I need a degree. I need to go to school. I'm like, no, you really don't. I mean, mm. it all depends on what you want to do. Because there's obviously certain paths and certain jobs that, you know, if you don't have a degree, you can't get in the door. But then on the other hand, especially with, you know, applied arts and, you know, kind of technical skills and stuff, it's, it's like, if you can do the work, I mean, what does the, what does the degree have to do with anything? And I definitely think, especially in, in, you know, arts and trade, that the idea of having years of experience makes a whole lot more sense than a piece of paper, even though I also realize that's totally contradictory, especially in the job market mm-hmm. today, because I, you know, it's, it's complicated, but, um, I don't know. I, from, from a, you know, four year BFA, you know, study, um, and art school and everything that I learned is not necessarily anything that's gotten me a job or, helped me to make a better income or any of that, but it was still just experience, mm-hmm. you know, life experience, knowledge, brain experience, um, that I wouldn't trade for anything. I mean, I, 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 I think it also has to do with how you use that information because right. like, like my grandmother, she, she was a graduate from Corcoran and mm-hmm. uh, she was a painter and she told me just straight up, and it's weird because she's so conservative, you'd think that she was like, oh, yes, you should do that to become a painter. She just one day told me, don't ever go to art school. They teach you how to paint like everyone else. Right. And I was just like, wow, okay. I think the thing that you can really gain by a degree or by an internship, I mean, I think the thing is just to pair up with someone that has knowledge and absorb it from them. Right. Absolutely. It's to understand the history and the context of these things. And I right. think the 
the thing that scares me about like graphic design, art, um, anything that's being made that is so much easier to be made now or like recording is the people that are making it without that background. They don't really understand where they are in the context of things. Right. And, and so they end up repeating things and maybe sometimes good, good, like, you know, quote unquote errors, according to the, like the trained mind, you might discover something new, but, right. um, especially like if you're dealing with something like typography and like certain basics of typography, you, you, mm-hmm. you know, you end up finding a lot of things that are very hard to read <laughs> that are made right. nowadays. Um, and even at like a huge scale, like, like, uh, uh, like flyers for, or, or booklets for, um, things that have a lot of money behind them, projects that have a lot of money behind them, you can look at them and tell like the person that, that did this as a graphic designer does not really understand like, like the basic, like if you go back to like the original, um, like I think it's like Chischold, uh, like a manual of um, letterpress uh, design. I remember that was mm-hmm. a book I'd really gotten into. It tells you the basics of like just how the human eye looks at and like word letting and all that kind of thing. Right. Like line right. letting. Um, mm-hmm. that's, so that's a, that's a thing. I hope these, I hope with these innovations that people can still learn the history of it, you know, well, here, here's a funny one that I have been battling for the last few years is, you know, I, I work in a photo lab. So for years I scanned film, I mean, for recent years, since we've transitioned to digital, I have been scanning people's old film and old slides and either just digitizing it or making prints from it. And so, you know, one of the things that you see from old film is bad color because it's just aged and, Mm. you know, 70 film is just kind of notoriously terrible looking. And so then you have this new thing, Instagram, which <laughs> capitalizes on that. I mean, capitalize is probably the right word, but, but you right. know, I mean, it, it glorifies bad color mm-hmm. and emulates this, you know, crappy stuff that I, for years, have been trying to fix. <laughs> and it makes me feel crazy. <laughs> and then this transition happened where now I see this whole new generation of people who are tr- are trying to yeah. make, you know, not even an Instagram thing, but, you know, they see, that they, they make this these pictures with this, like, weird, like, yellow, glowing, hazing, blown out thing. And, like, that's their, they're, they're trying to do that. And I'm just like, oh, my God, you've been ruined. Like, you just don't, you don't even understand what, what. Oh, and, you know, and it's just like it pains me. Well, and before and, Instagram, it was the Holga. The Holga really, right? That kind right. of played that up, right? True. And and so there's a, there's an irony though, also because I love Instagram and I use Instagram for this you know project that I've been telling you about. Mm-hmm. But there's only like one filter in instagram that i like and all those like other weird ones i just kind of go why why would you want to do this and it's an interesting thing though i i mean i i kind of wish that people understood what they were doing when Mm -hmm. they're using these things and and why and 
And then there's another part of me that's like, oh, I wish there was, they would just give some other options that were better, which, of course, I'm sure, you know, there's apps for that, you know. Yeah. But, um, but it's just, it's kind of like you say, it's just a weird thing of just not understanding what came before and then creating after without that extra knowledge that, you know, then again, though, you can, you can say, like, does it matter? You know, does someone have to understand it? to be able to, you know, do new stuff. I mean, of course See, not. That brings but, up an interesting point but. because, <laughs> yeah, that having grown up with those pictures, like I grew up around that bad photography, like those colors mm-hmm. and all that crap. And mm-hmm. it, it it's kind of like growing up having to look at people dressed like they did in the 70s, mm-hmm. like, or listen to like people listening to like, that band Alabama or like cool in the gang or like, like that was the shit my dad would play when I was a kid. And so when I see like people retroactively looking at it, I'm like, dude, that's why I became a punk. That shit's horrible. You know, like, and so when photography, like I was like, let's get clear images. You know, I'd like maybe the way Fuji film would like, you know, make the green crazy or something like that in an image like that ultra kind of look to it or whatever. But yeah, I think, I think that that throwback to the Holga in the, in the Instagram, I think it has to do with just the, like if you take a Canon point and shoot and you shoot right. it at something right now, it's just so boring looking and it's just what? so, <laughs> it's so devoid of that magic you were talking about the other day of photography. Like there's, there's not much magic to the way Canon <laughs> standard uh, CMOS sensor, you know, uh, does a picture. It, it's it's very kind of like... And everyone does yeah. it. Everyone yeah. does it all the time. Everyone's documenting everything constantly all the time. So what differentiates anything? You know, it's just... It's not... It's almost not even anything special. Which, I mean, not everyone takes pictures because they want something special. Most people, I think, take pictures just to... I was there. I did this. Right. We, we you know, we exist. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. That I think that's the. I did this paper a while back, and my my theory was that the reason people are taking so many pictures nowadays is because because of, of the media culture that we grew up in. Right. Seeing it with those relics of the like the crop and these kind of things, people have assigned a certain agency of reality to these things so it doesn't actually become real to a certain extent until it's like in that framework well yeah like i i wasn't actually at the show until i take my you know my <laughs> selfie and post it to facebook and now i was at the show now right no i was at the show so now it's real that, that's weird. such a weird it's such a weird thing i i, I worry about that psychologically for people um because it 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 well it, it extends. There's this guy named Marshall McLuhan, and and he he uh I'm not are you, ever, are you familiar with any of his theories? Mm-hmm. Um, he was a media theorist in the '60s, and he said that technology is the is the extension of man, like literally. Like if we're using technology right. and it it's slow, we start to get kind of angry and nervous and whatever. His his thing is that whatever we're using becomes part of our nervous system essentially, and to require validation through an external tool is kind of a weird thing because now you're dependent on that. 
And that concludes part six of our eight-part interview with Chris. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on April 28th and April 30th, 2014. Welcome back to Various Things. This is part seven of our eight-part interview with Chris Sports Larson. Enjoy. How important do you think histories are to a movement like, uh, like punk? I think I think history is always important because. You know, and, and then kind of what we were talking about with, you know, throwback to the, you know, the the 70s, you know, whether it be, you know, visually or music or clothes or, you know, I mean, we're constantly recycling. We've always been doing that. You know, in the 80s, we recycled the 60s and then, then you know, vice versa. And I don't know what we're recycling now. I mean, I've, I've lost track, given up. But, I mean, we're always pulling from what's already happened pulling it back into now and then changing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and it happens with, with everything. And I think, I mean, you know, it's one thing if you're just talking about like what, what kind of clothes are cool to wear right now. It's another thing if you're talking about, you know, critical, you know, thinking, activism, movements, art, you know, theories and stuff. If you know what happened in the past, it's going to help you not just recycle, but actually, you know, learn and better Mm -hmm. the next, whatever it is that you do, instead of just doing the exact same thing that someone did, you know, last year or last decade, last century, it's like you can learn what they learned when they did what they did and then take it to the next level, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and this was something that, you know, was really, uh, a learning experience and a frustrating one, you know, working with a collective in New York at ABC No Rio. I mean, you know, we would constantly be redoing, redoing the same things over and over as new people would get involved and say, well, why don't we do, you know, do this? And we say, well, we already did that and it, and it didn't work and this is why. And then there's always, you know, kind of new blood that's frustrated because they want to, experiment and learn it for themselves. They don't want someone to just say, like, this is how it is. We've already done that. You know, right. let's do something new. I mean, in, in, to, an, to an extent, everyone has to learn it their own, on their own. And yet, I think that there's nothing better than having, you know, an, an elder or another generation or someone with experience in something that you're either interested in or trying to do or trying to learn from to be able to like pick their brain and say, okay, well, you know, you did this and this worked, this didn't, you know, tell me about it so that I can apply it, you know, and and I'm talking like across so many different, like I said, you know, everything from like community activism to art to, you know, uh, just the collective experience, you know, I mean, 
but I, I really do think that you can always learn from what has already happened and, you know, not that it should stop you from experimenting and repeating, I mean, what, you know, repeating the mistakes of the past, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, but, but really you can, you know, you can gain knowledge from what has already happened and hopefully, you know, try to do something new and better. Another thing is, is being with, with art school, it's kind of another like backtrack. Um, I was feel like I learned in school probably another thing that was said to be one day that just stuck with me that you, you know you have to learn the rules before you can break them. Yeah. And I think that is so completely true. I mean, you know, to apply that philosophy to photography, if you don't learn, you know, and by the rules, it's really, you know, the the mechanics, the, mm. the how things work. If you don't understand the camera, then everything, you'll never have any control and everything that you do will always be an accident. And maybe you can, you know, always just have happy accidents. But <laughs> it's going to ultimately make you, you know, a stronger artist and, a, you know, just ha- being able to understand the process and what you're doing so that you know what is happening and then, you know, and then have happy accidents or, you know, like everyone in, in beginning photography always wants to make everything like super contrasty, you know, mm-hmm. just like go completely black and white. And, you know, you kind of have to do it because it's just so cool. Mm-hmm. But if you never learn about all the, the grayscale and how to actually expose, of course, now I'm, Again, dating myself because this is irrelevant, you know, how to make a proper exposure, you know, um, then it's like you're, you kind of miss, um, half of the, half of the point. Well, the, but, the tonal quality of the image. I mean, half of it's absolutely. gone. Absolutely. And if you have, you know, your image, you know, captured right, then if you want to just tweak it, go for it. But yeah. if you never learn how to expose it, then you're never going to be able to. And, I don't know. It's again, it starts to get into a whole philosophy because I'm sure there's plenty of people could argue and say, so what? An interesting thing I had noticed was when the Occupy movement happened, well, that it happened at all because I was just like, wow, that's amazing. Um, But then what I learned is I think the main reason it happened is because none of the people that generally were involved with activism were really a part of it. And so they didn't know those like – history (laughs) and so like these kids came in and they were just totally like naive and they were just like yeah we're gonna do this and it was beautiful like that right but (laughs) simultaneously i saw them get co-opted into like various things really quick (laughs) um like like infighting um like here in richmond uh how to deal with people that are like just ridiculously violent um uh, mm-hmm. and these kind of not really knowing how to deal with the media properly, like, and it was weird in Richmond, at least we were lucky because there were some, uh, activists that had been involved in it for a while and could kind of bring it, bring their perspectives. But mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes the unlearned that, that non, cause there's a certain jadedness I think that comes with like the longer you become familiar with something, the more skilled you are at it, but also you start to develop kind of like a personal taste, I guess. And, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, 
and you start ruling things out for yourself that are probably perfectly fine for you to rule out for yourself, but there's little things that maybe connect to that that you might like. And I think as an artist, that's the area that I'm always like struggling with is like trying to make sure that like I'm doing what I need to be doing, what works for me, but simultaneously like keeping my eye open. And the fact that you're doing these pictures with Instagram of these trees seems like a great example of you doing that because it's like, you know what works and, but (laughs) this is awesome. Like that's exactly what, that's exactly what I was thinking. And that's why it was so exciting to say, okay, here's a format. I've never worked with, I've never worked with the square, you know, I, and now I'm using a square format with, you know, like something I have very little control over. And yet I have, an amazing amount of control over with, mm-hmm. you know, the touch screen, you know, phone thing, you know, cause it's, it's, it's a complicated little gadget. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it was just, it was so freeing and so empowering at the same time because it was so something so different. And yet I, I mean, I found this inspiration like I hadn't had in years and mm-hmm. it was just crazy it's still kind of crazy because I'm still I mean now I'm like two years into the project so yeah I found my my formula and my system and you know and and yet that's also enabled me to like control it and get better at it and you know I know that this is going to work and that's not and toss this and stuff but but yeah yeah the completely um going against the the logic and the training is I had an I actually had an assignment like that in my first year in school, which was to get a one of those little, you know, plastic throwaway cameras, get the film out of it, like put black and white film in it and just go and take pictures that way. And and the the lesson, it was just, you know, a one one off thing. But, you know, the point was that you don't need a fancy camera. You don't need the control. Just see what happens when all you're doing is just composing and looking. You know, it was a, like a lesson in seeing, you know. And it was, you know, it was an interesting. It was an interesting one. And in a way, you know, this like cell phone business is kind of similar. Yeah. In some regards. <laughs> And that concludes part seven of our eight-part interview with Chris Sports Larson. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on April 28th and April 30th, 2014. This is part eight of our eight-part interview with Chris Boards Larson. Enjoy. Something that I wanted to ask you about, and I feel weird asking it because, like, essentially I want to, like, ask you about being a female-bodied person or a woman in punk rock. Um, uh-huh. And I hate asking women about this because 
it's like I don't want to cordon them off or anything like that and be like, well, how does this side of punk rock work for y'all or something like that? Because I right. was, I mean, did that present issues for you? Like, did it, was it hard or were there more women? I mean, you were, you basically started in, in Pennsylvania and then you went to New York City. Is that right? Um, yeah. Well, it was a little jaunt in Boston in between, but yeah. <laughs> how, um, how, how was the scene more women back then or was it about the same or? I had a very lucky situation that growing up in Pennsylvania, there was a lot of really rad women. There was a bunch of women, you know, punk women who were just, you know, cool. And so I got a lot of, you know, I, I, I had that, I guess as a role model, as an influence, like it just, it, it existed mm-hmm. probably in a way that for, for some people it just didn't. I mean, Greta, Greta was the first punk rocker I ever saw, you know, really? grew up, Greta grew up, we grew up in the same town and went to the same schools and stuff. So, I mean, wow. how rad is that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it kind of just start and end right there. But I mean, seriously, like, I, I had a, a fortunate situation where, you know, I had role models early on. My mom is a, is a super role model because she's one who defies, like, gender categories. She has a theater background. She's an artist. She's a woodworker. She was, you know, doing, you know, what was not normal in 50s America as a woman then, you know. So I was never taught gender role. You know, even from a very early age, I was never, you know, kind of felt any kind of restriction. I was always encouraged to just do what I wanted, you know. Mm. And so I never felt any any boundaries or any restrictions. It never felt weird. I always just did what I did. And I never felt like I was special or only or, you know, any, anything like that. And... And then as, you know, as it went on, I mean, you know, you feel funny asking the question, but obviously this is a question that has been asked of me every time anyone's ever, you know, done any kind of interview or anything, because it's, it is a very, very dynamic part of my experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, for me, it never changed it. I don't think it made anything harder I don't think it made anything easier. I mean, I'm sure in some ways I had obstacles that I didn't even know were there. And I'm sure I also had opportunities that I didn't even know I was, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I was maybe recognized because I was a girl. So that made me different or special or something, but it was just never an issue. Like I didn't, I didn't do my, do what I did as a girl. I did it as me. And it was only when I, through the mail, especially because I went by Chris, everyone just assumed <laughs> that I was a guy. Which oh, wow. And so then it became important that people knew that I was a girl because I didn't want people to assume that I was a guy. But it still didn't change what I did. But that's why I started going by Christine, uh-huh. was just to say, like, hey, fuck you. I'm a girl. And there we go. And then everything that I did really had not, you know, it wasn't gender oriented in any way. So 
I, I think I did have a very, you know, sort of unique and different experience from many other people for a multitude of, of reasons. And it's interesting. And, and this is part three that we could talk about for another eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> so have you thought of, um, and I know we're getting close up to the three o'clock time yeah. here. Um, the end of school window. <laughs> well, let me ask you this last question then. Um, do you think of yourself as an artist? Yes. All right. I that, that was a very <laughs> simple answer. <laughs> Most I people mean, go back and forth about it. That's, uh, yeah, I am. I mean, sure. Have I, you uh, ever exhibited? I mean, yes, I, I have. Put my photographs? Yeah. Yeah, I've had a, I've had um, I've had a number of various photo exhibits here and there. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I've never done anything like, you know, so I've, I've never like had like representation by a gallery or anything like right. totally pro, you know what I mean? Like, but I've done tons of exhibits. I mean, not tons, but you know, here and there. Because when I was talking um, to Dave, he said to me, he was like, and I, I, I think I can actually quote him on this. He said, I'm not a photographer like Chris is. Right. And, and I was like, well, wait a minute. You take photos. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, and you put out a photo book. And he's like, right. And I'm like, how are you, <laughs> how are you not a photographer? I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, know yeah, mean. yeah. But he's a dude, he's a dude that takes pictures. He's a dude that takes pictures. <laughs> and so where do you think that, that, that difference is? Um... See, that's a whole other thing that we can talk about for a couple hours because, and, and I thought about that back a while ago when we were talking about technology and, you know, like the difference between film and digital and how now nowadays, I mean, everyone's a photographer. Everybody takes pictures with their, with their stuff, you know? I mean, you don't need a camera anymore. Everyone's little gadget that they carry around takes pictures. Everyone's a photographer. And what what differentiates, you know, taking pictures from being a photographer or being an artist? Yeah. That I mean, I can't give you that answer. You know, I can give theories and thoughts and you know. Likewise, I mean, you know, what differentiates the difference between someone who who writes and who's a writer? You know. Right. And here's a funny thing. I mean, for all of the years that I published my zine. And I did a lot of writing. I never thought I was a writer. Probably the same way that Dave says he's not a photographer. And I said that many times to people, and they'd be like, what are you talking about? Of course you're a writer. I'm like, I'm not. I'm a photographer. I just write. I just, I have stuff that I have to write, and I just do it. But I'm not a writer. I don't think I'm good at writing. I just do it. And, and not that, not that, Thinking you're good at it is what makes you it. Right. I mean, because you can think you're good at something, and I mean, and that's that's a whole other thing. Right. I I don't know that I can I can really explain it simply. I just know that I I I've never been a writer. I do a lot of writing. Well, not so much now, but I have, mm. and and it's something I taught myself how to do, and got good at within context. You know of writing columns and reviews and letters. That's the kind of writing I did. 
if you sat me told me I had to write a term paper or something, I'd have a panic attack, you know? It's just, <laughs> oh, God, you know? I, I don't I, I, I don't feel like a wordsmith at all. I don't feel like I have a craft of words. But I'm a visual artist. Absolutely. Mm. I see everything. In, in you know, like I, I said before, I see everything as a photograph. Like, I am a walk. I walk. I am constantly framing and composing, and everything is visual to me. I mean, much the same way that I'm sure there are people who everything is, is sound. You know, they just hear hear music everywhere. They're writing songs in their heads all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a musician at all. I can't do anything like that. But I'm definitely, I mean, I, absolutely, I, I'm definitely a visual artist. And, so it sounds um, like it's more of a definition of like a person's approach to life rather than the specific thing they do. Like how they, how they approach the world. Um, you, you, you approach it as a photographer, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess definitely. And I mean, the thing is, is there are photographers who would have, who would be, you know, someone who would say, I, I am a photographer, I am an artist, mm. and they would have a very different theory. You know, I mean, that's my theory, that's my approach. And I think there, I know people who, you know, who take great pictures, who probably wouldn't consider themselves artists or photographers. You know, I mean, you can you can do something great, but it doesn't make you that necessarily. Mm. You know what I mean? Like... Uh, yeah. It sounds kind of weird. It almost sounds like it could come off snobbish, you know, to be like, oh, well, you might, you might, you might do well at that, but you're really not that. I mean, that's, you know, and, and in a way it's, I, I don't know, do you, do we need to define ourselves? Do we need to? But then again, like, we identify with things, you know, so hmm. you can like punk, but are you a punk? I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, that, 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 yeah, that brings up a thing I've been thinking about a lot between the difference between a genre and a culture. Right. You know, or liking something and being part of something or doing something, being something. I mean, it's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a whole, I mean, and and I, it'd be fun. It'd be a fun conversation to have for another hour. And that concludes part eight of our eight part interview. Chris Sports Larson. I'd like to thank Chris for taking the time to chat, and I hope you enjoyed listening as well. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on April 28th and April 30th, 2014. Thanks for listening.